I'm Matt Schrader, and this is a special bonus episode of Blockbuster. Several years ago, I had the privilege of meeting James Cameron himself for a film I directed called Score, a film music documentary. James had agreed to interview with us, so our small production crew drove down to Manhattan Beach, California, the headquarters of Lightstorm Entertainment, and they let us set up in a giant soundstage filled with props from all of his movies. We saw the loader from Aliens, two enormous and extremely detailed models of the Titanic, uh, some of the Navi props from Avatar. We were there to talk about the power of music in film, which Score covered extensively in the documentary. But we also stumbled into several touching moments that weren't used in the documentary, memories of his work and relationship with composer Jamie Horner. Jamie Horner was an avid pilot his whole life. He always loved flying, and in June 2015, his plane crashed in the Los Padres National Forest in Southern California. He was 61 years old. In our interview with James Cameron, he shared some of his fondest memories of his working relationship with Horner, who he now calls one of the greatest composers who's ever lived. That interview and several of the stories about working with Jamie Horner right after this. Well, you know, James was ambitious right from the get-go. When I first met him, he had just scored a movie called Humanoids of the Deep, or Humanoids from the Deep, maybe, um, uh, for Roger Corman. And I was working in that little Corman stable at the time doing a, a movie called Battle Beyond the Stars. The producer of, of Humanoids from the Deep was uh, became, uh, or, or I met her on Battle Beyond the Stars, and that was Gail Hurd. And she knew James. And so when we did Aliens, she said, and I, and I knew James from that time, and he actually scored Battle Beyond the Stars. Um, and then later when we did Aliens, she said, well, why don't we, why don't we have James do it? You know, because he had really established himself by that, by that time. And, you know, I thought, okay, what do I know about James? And I kind of met him in the hallways at, at Corman, and he was just starting out. And his, almost his first score, I guess it was technically his second score, out of the gate was, was Battle Beyond the Stars. And it was this big, lush orchestral score on a Roger Corman film. It was unheard of. Somehow he managed to take a little bit of money and turn it into this amazing score. So he was, he was pretty ambitious musically right from the, the beginning. And, you know, he was classically trained, you know, and, and really knew how to write for orchestra, which a lot of, you know, fledgling composers don't know. And so he just went right into it, and it turned out he had a real flair for conducting. He had good rapport with orchestras. He got a lot of bang for the buck. Um, so, you know, I'm laboring in the trenches on this movie, Battle Beyond the Stars, and we were being very ambitious on the visual side. We had a little tiny bit of money, and we were blowing, you know, blowing things up and doing these very elaborate visual effects. And when we finally saw the film, it all felt like it was much bigger than we knew it actually cost. In fact, once the score was put to the film, Roger Corman came to me and, and said, um, Jim, uh, uh, what do you think we can say this film cost? I said, well, I don't know, Roger. I mean, we knew that it cost under $2 million. And I said, I don't know, I think you could probably say four or five, six million dollars. And he said, really? Because <laughs> for him, it was all about perception, you know. I don't think he'd ever made a film that cost more than a million dollars up to that point. But the score, the ambitiousness of the score really allowed that, you know, and and we got some actually pretty good, pretty solid reviews on that film, which I I think is kind of a dog, but but it was a certainly ambitious dog, 
Um, and then James really consolidated that reputation. He went on and did, uh, you know, Star Trek Wrath of Khan, I think was the next one where he really broke onto the scene with a, with a big orchestral score that was uh, very, very memorable, established himself. And then he just worked, worked, worked very hard doing a whole bunch of different films, showing that he had a lot of range and scope and diversity of ideas, which is important too. I like to start working as early as possible with the, with the composer, James Horner in particular. He would start long before there was a cut of the film doing themes, you know, just doing melodies, just, just getting the sound. And, uh, you know, so there's trying to figure out the, vo the musical vocabulary. When we were cutting Titanic, we hadn't even cut very much of the film yet. Um, he just sat at the piano and he wrote some stuff and he, and he played it for me, uh, solo piano. And it was the, the three major themes from the film. And I cried on all three of them. He played the first one. I thought, my God, this is gonna be a fantastic score. He played another one and I said, you have room for these two themes? He said, ah, there's one more coming. And I had a, a, a deep emotional reaction. And he's sitting solo piano, there's no orchestra. You know, he's just, he's just playing it. And, and it really taught me the power of a melody. And so I was sitting there cutting one day and a disc came in that said sketch. I thought, oh, okay, this goes for the sketching scene, right? And uh, so I had, them, I had them put it into the Abbott and I, I put it up to the sketching scene and it didn't seem to sync up very well. And I thought, oh, well, maybe, maybe we've trimmed the scene or something and, it, and he was working to an old cut. So I just kind of slid it around until I found a place where it seemed to sync with the scene nicely. And there's a kind of uh, piano downbeat um, that I just put on, on Leonardo's eyes coming up and looking directly you know, at the camera. Uh, critical moment of eye contact between the two of them while he's drawing her. And, um, and then, boy, it just really flowed and it just seemed to hit every, every movement of his hand and everything, it was fantastic. Solo piano, not just, just, just a very simple piano melody. So I was so excited about it, I called him up and I said, this, this is working so well with this scene. He said, what are you talking about? Well, you just sent it over, this, this sketch. I put it up to the sketching scene and it's working fantastically. And he said, oh, no, 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 that's just a sketch. It's just a piano sketch of a melody. We can drop it in anywhere. And I said, but it works beautifully on this scene. He said, really? I said, yeah, get your ass over here. So he didn't live too far away from, you know, from where I live and I was cutting up my house. So he came over, he said, Oh, that works pretty well, okay. All right, well, I'll get, uh, and he was already thinking about what pianist he could get to, to play it, because it was really, he said, all right, I'll orchestrate it. And I said, no, 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 just the piano, just the piano, this is fantastic. It's exactly the right thing for the scene. And he said, all right, I, I, I know the, the, best, the best pianist in the world, I know, he's out of London. I said, no, it's you, buddy, it's you. We're going with this, <laughs> you don't understand. You've done it already, you can move on, this scene's done. He said, but that's just me noodling around. I said, exactly, you're sketching. It's not a painting, it's a sketch. He said, oh, he hated this. He hated this, by the way, because he was in, you know, he was very humble about, about his playing. And I said, but it's fantastic. So when you, when you, you know, see the movie next time in the sketching scene, that's James playing. And it might be the only time he's ever played on a score. I don't know, because he doesn't like to play. He always thinks he can get the best guy in the world to do it, you know. Sorry, I'm, I always talk about him in the present tense, but that's okay. He'll always be in the present tense for us. He'll always be in the present tense for us because his music will always be there. In just a moment, you'll hear James talk about the day he learned of that tragic plane crash that killed Jamie Horner and the story of Jamie surprising him with his iconic Celine Dion song for Titanic. So you knew him for about uh, 
three and a half decades. I don't want, I don't want to mm. dwell too much on, on the day that he died, but I do want to ask you, what was it like during those moments when we found out there had been a plane that crashed that had been registered to James Horner? Yeah, we hadn't yeah. yet found out if he was the pilot. What was, what was that moment like? Look, unfortunately, I've, I've been through this type of thing before, and pretty much the first thing you hear is probably what it is, you know, unless there's some miracle. And, uh, you know, so when I heard about it uh, and, you know, I knew that he'd done a lot of stunt flying and so on, that, that his plane had gone down, there, there wasn't a great deal of doubt in my mind. I, I immediately began processing it as, oh, we've lost James, you know. And, and then I started thinking, wow, you know, what was my last interaction with him? That's where my mind goes. You know, how did, how did we leave it together between us, you know? Um, and the, the, the amazing thing was the last, my last interaction with James, and I'm not the best friend in the world. I don't always, you know, service my friendships and my relationships as well as I should, but, but an opportunity came up about a month earlier to, f to fly to England to be present at um, a Titanic live performance where uh, a major orchestra played the entire score from beginning to end in a screening of the film at the Royal Albert Hall. And I thought, and James was going to be there and introduce it. And, and I thought, what a great opportunity for me to give something back to him, to honor him, not to go there and take any acclaim whatsoever. I was happy to slink in and slink out with, without anybody even knowing I was there other than him. I wanted him to know that I was there, that I was you know, supporting him. But to see him take his bows for such a great score that everybody still loves to this day, you know, 18 years later, and so, you know, I went and we had a great, you know, kind of get back together. We talked a little bit about the Avatar scores coming up. And, uh, you know, he was very excited about that. And so, you know, it was just, that was my, that's the last time I saw him, you know, and it was great because it was, it was all about him and his music. And he dragged uh, myself and John Landau up onto the stage to take a bow with him, which, which was very generous of him. But there was just this great sense that here, you know, a decade and a half or a little bit more, earlier, we had done something together for the ages. So we really felt this great sort of glow of, of friendship and, um, you know, kind of joint artistic accomplishment. And we were really looking forward to the next thing. You know, James has, has a body of work, over 100 scores that spans 30 years. Um, and they go from very low budget films to, to the most massive budgets out there. Uh, in my case, two, <laughs> two of the, you know, highest costing films, uh, fortunately also highest grossing, uh, which is why I'm still in business and not unemployed and you're not, you know, interviewing me in some soup line. Um, no, I think, I think it's just a, a, a legacy of being in that, in that cadre of the top two or three composers in the world that really just had such a, such an impact on film music and really made us all collectively realize how important music is and how, how uh, the hand of the composer is so much an important part of the film experience. The other story is about this uh, Celine Dion song. So uh, he, he called me up and said, are you in a, are you, I'm editing the film. And we all think, we think we're doomed. Everybody's mocking us and ridiculing us for going so far over budget and schedule and everything. And, and I said, no, 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 I'm not in a good mood, but I'll never be in a good mood again for the rest of my life. So what's your question? And he said, no, 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 you have to be in a good mood. 
So he wanted to play something for me. So we actually went out to my office. It was a DAT tape, and I had a, a DAT machine in my office. So we went out there, and it was just the two of us listening. And so I hear the recognizable kind of Celtic melody start, and then it, it, it gets kind of, you know, orchestrated in a different way, more of a pop orchestration. And I think, oh, no, here we go. It's a song, and, and I hear a voice begin to sing, and... Uh, oh, you jamming a you jamming a song on me? Okay, all right. And I and then I listening to the song and I'm, th I'm listening to the lyrics and wow, this is actually a pretty good song. And wow, this really supports all the themes in the film. I'm starting to get a real a, a real emotional reaction here. And by the end of the song, I was convinced that it could be something really important. And you know, because previously we had talked about a song. And, you know, I, I kind of crapped all over that idea. I said, come on, you wouldn't put a song at the end of Schindler's List, would you? This is serious filmmaking. You know, it's kind of all up in my own ideas. And uh, so he kind of snuck it in, and I listened to it. And then I thought about the, the power of the song in the, in the Bodyguard, the Whitney Houston song, I Will Always Love You. I thought, the power of that song in the zeitgeist to always remind you about that movie. And I thought, well, this could be that. This could easily be that. And so I said, okay, let's stick it in the end credits. And, um, you know, he said, well, do you recognize the singer? I said, no, but it's me. I don't know, I don't know pop singers from Adam, you know. He said, well, it's Celine Dion, because he had actually done a demo with her, and it was actually her performance of the song. And I said, she's big, right? <laughs> this has been a special bonus episode of Blockbuster, remembering James Horner. I'm Matt Schrader, and if you liked what you've heard in this limited podcast series and want to hear more in future seasons, please be sure to give us a five-star review in your favorite podcast app and share us with a friend who'd like us. Or you can support us and help us develop the next season of Blockbuster at getblockbuster.com. And also find us on social media at BlockbusterPod or follow me at Matt Schrader. From our whole podcast team, thank you for listening to this season of Blockbuster.